Pastor David and Miss Pat. Let's open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We are back after last week, taking a break from our exposition of the Sermon on the Mount. And I actually want to remind us that uh, today is Resurrection Day, as each Lord's Day is the Resurrection Day, because each Lord's Day we do celebrate our risen Savior, amen, not just once a year, Uh, but uh, that's why we worship on Sunday, because it is the day that Christ rose from the dead, so each Lord's Day should be a celebration that we serve a risen Savior, amen. Uh, So we're going to go back to our study on the Sermon on the Mount. Today we're going to look at another angle that Jesus gives us regarding uh, reconciliation, Only this time, it's not about being reconciled one to another, but about being reconciled to your maker, God himself. So we're at Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to read verses 25 and 26. The word of the Lord says, Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again that we can gather around your word. Lord, we pray that you would use your word, God, to convict us, encourage us, comfort us. Uh, Father, I pray that the words that I speak would be the words that you have spoken, no more, no less. Uh, Lord, we are in desperate need of your grace. God, we pray that your word would do its work today. Father, all those who are hearing, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've been preaching through the Sermon on the Mount quite some time. Matter of fact, I think I started this when most of y'all weren't even here. Uh, So what I want to do before we dive into the text, I thought it would be good to sort of take a step back and reorient us all to this sermon that Jesus preached in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, to provide a little bit of context for you. It's always important when you're reading and studying the Bible that you look at things within its context and you sort of look at the 50,000-foot uh, view, and then you also zoom in, is what we're going to do today, and look at two passages. So you also zoom in and look at you know the actual trees inside the forest. Uh, but it's also good to kind of back out and say, where are we? Uh, within this text. So that's what I wanted to spend just a few moments before we dive into the text on on where this is and and that sort of thing. We're going to look at the gospel according to Matthew. It was written by Matthew, if you didn't know. Uh, But the focus and the overall theme of the whole book of Matthew is to reveal Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, who is the King of the Jews. Matthew's primary audience was a Jewish uh, was a Jewish audience, and it was a Jewish unbelieving audience was who Matthew was writing to, and he was writing to, as I said, to focus that Jesus is the Messiah, but he's also the King of the Jews. Even in the chapter one, the genealogy that we all love to read, he starts with Abraham. Okay, he, he's doing this to show a point. See, Luke. And his genealogy starts from uh, Jesus and works his way back all the way up to Adam. He, and Luke, in his gospel, is showing that uh, Jesus uh, came to save sinners for all of mankind. Matthew's making the point in the genealogy, starting with Abraham, that Jesus, through Abraham's seed, and then 
specifically through David's seed, is the rightful heir to be the king and the Messiah of the Jews. Also, Matthew has more Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah uh, fulfilled than any other gospel. So we see this. And now the Sermon on the Mount uh, comes as one of five discourses in all of the book of Matthew. And the context for the Sermon on the Mount is that it's not necessarily at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, even though it's on chapter 5. Matthew didn't write chronologically. And many uh, writers, uh, godly or or pagan, uh, wrote sometimes not in chronological order. And Matthew did this to prove a point. He structured it in a way to show that to the Jews, your king has arrived, and that king is Jesus. And this King Jesus has brought his kingdom to earth. Matter of fact, kingdom of heaven is a unique phrase used only in the book of Matthew, and it's used 32 times all throughout the gospel. It's used in Matthew 3, verse 2, where it says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was John the Baptist. And then it's used in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, if you look there, It says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew wanted his Jewish audience to know that the king has arrived. His kingdom is here. Okay, but they missed it. They absolutely missed it. And there's many other texts where this is referenced. Uh, But even in Matthew 10, 7, when Jesus is commissioning his disciples, he says that as you go preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, meaning it's here, it's now. You see, the Jews missed this. They thought that their Messiah was going to come and be specifically military, be a David-like figure who would come with a physical kingdom and establish his kingdom, break their chains away from Rome, and would have an earthly kingdom. Matthew places the Sermon on the Mount at the beginning here in chapter 5 to communicate that the true kingdom of heaven is here, but the true kingdom of heaven begins spiritually, not by force, but that the kingdom was here and that it would grow, not by military force, but through the proclamation of the gospel, the good news of the gospel that was sent forth. And in the Sermon on the Mount, we have the kingdom of heaven is here. And now this sermon, Jesus is explaining who is in the kingdom and who is not in the kingdom. Those who are in the kingdom, here is how they behave. That's the whole Sermon on the Mount. If you look at the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes tell us who is in the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn over their sin, those who are bankrupt in their spirit. They know they have nothing to offer God. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the what? The kingdom of heaven. Matthew used that same phrase there. So Matthew's saying the kingdom is here. The kingdom's at hand. The Messiah and the king is here. Here is who is in the kingdom. It's not the the military, strong, forceful leaders, but the kingdom first starts spiritually, friends. It starts spiritually. So the first 17 chapter or 17 verses, or 16 rather, Jesus describes who is in the kingdom and who's not in the kingdom. 
He provides a general description of who is a Christian. Okay, if you, if you haven't listened to some of my sermons on the Beatitudes, I encourage you to go back and listen to those because much of the world gets it all wrong and they take the Beatitudes as some moral compass, but it really shows who has been changed by the work of God in the inner man and who is a Christian and who is not. Who is a Christian and who is not. Then the rest of the sermon after chapter 5, verse 16 provides the general outworkings of the inner work of God. So the first 16 verses shows us the inner workings of God in a, in a person's life, what makes them a Christian in the inner man. And then the rest of the sermon provide the particular outworkings of the inner work of God in one's life. Chapter 5, verse 17, beginning at 17 through the rest of the chapter, verse 48, this deals with how a Christian lives in the relationship, in their relationship to the law of God. The Christian, as described in the Beatitudes, where God has changed their heart, they're poor in spirit, they're, they're broken over their sin, uh, they're humble, they hunger and thirst for righteousness, they're merciful, they're pure in heart. This Christian seeks to obey the law of God. In chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but he said he came to confirm it, to establish the law of God. And then he says the rest of the chapter, he rebukes the Pharisaical legalism of how they took God's law and adulterated it. They took God's law and they ignored the original intent of God's law. They ignored the, uh, the part that God is concerned about, which is your heart of the gods of the law. They ignored the spirit of the law. And then in many cases, they twisted the external parts of the law. And that's where we are uh, in our text today. But the Christian who's been changed by God seeks to obey the spirit of the law without negating the letter of the law. In other words, the Christian wants to obey the very intent of the law of God from the heart, not merely adhering to the law externally. And that's where the Pharisees took and it ended up into legalism because they ignored the intent of the law was to cut to the heart. Like the first one, Jesus said, thou shalt not kill, but I say to you, he wasn't correcting the sixth commandment. He was, he was correcting the historic uh, interpretation of that law because he says in verse 21, you have heard that the ancients were told. Again, I went over this in pre, uh, previous sermons. But he's not rebuking that he, what was written. He was rebuking what the ancients, what the historic rabbi teaching was on thou shalt not commit murder, that it starts in the heart, that if you have anger towards your brother, you're guilty of the same sin as murder. So the Christian seeks to obey the heart of the law, which then, by the way, leads to the external outworking of the law. You know, in many circles today, the external parts of the law are totally ignored and it's all internal and that's twisted, right? Well, God knows my heart and God knows that I'm not happy with my spouse 
And so I'm going to go do this. God knows my heart. Don't be so legalistic, Mark, about what God says in his law. I mean, the Old Testament is done away with, right? How many times have you heard something like that? So that's what we have in chapter 5. Chapter 6 deals with how the Christian lives in relationship to the actual presence of God. The actual presence of God. The Christian, as described in the Beatitudes, seeks to do all things to glorify God alone, whether that's giving, praying, fasting, all of that. The true Christian seeks to do that, not to be seen of man, but the true Christian does it to seek for the glory of God alone. And then chapter 7 deals with how the Christian lives under the fear of God, under the fear of God. And then the Sermon on the Mount ends, and this is where I want to briefly read before we dive into our text. The Sermon on the Mount ends with the application and consequences for obeying Jesus' teaching or disobeying or disregarding. So look at chapter 7. I'm going to read at verse 24. Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And when the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew, slammed against the house, and it fell. And great was its fall. When Jesus finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. And he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. So building your foundation, as it says, upon the rock, is what it means to be spiritually stable. To have spiritual stability. And how many of us today want to have spiritual stability? It's not God's intent that we sway to and fro that every little thing that happens causes us to get in a panic and a stir or we're falling off one end of the spiritual spectrum and then we're hot one day and we're cold another day. Uh, God doesn't want the Christian to live that way. God wants you to have spiritual stability and that comes only one way, my friends. It comes by hearing the word of God and acting upon it. It's more specifically upon the Sermon on the Mount as we're going through this verse by verse I want to encourage you to take your own time uh, to read the Sermon on the Mount. Study it. Look at the text that we're coming up with. Because, again, if you want spiritual stability, take this sermon, apply it to your life, read it, study it, meditate upon it. And as Jesus says, you will have stability. When the storm comes, you will not be swayed, you will not be knocked over because you have your life founded upon the rock. I preached a whole sermon on the introduction on the Sermon on the Mount. I just wanted to give you a brief overview. You can go to our website and look at that sermon. Uh, I want to say it was almost a year ago. Uh, But now let's go go to our text. Okay, so we're in chapter 5. We're in chapter 5, verse 25 and 26. We're in this section, starting at verse 17 to the end, uh, that describes how true believers live in relationship to the law of God. Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to confirm or to establish uh, the law. Uh, And he's correcting, as I said, the pharisaical, uh, pharisaical legalism and their historic interpretations of the law. 
Uh, God made the law. He's not correcting his own law. He's correcting their misapplication and misinterpretation of the law. And he's given the true sense, and Jesus is giving the uh, original intent of the law with these six illustrations uh, that we'll see, and we're still on the first one. The original intent of the law, friends, was so lofty, so holy, that an honest examination of just one of these commandments should be enough to shatter our pride and destroy any idea that we can merit any ounce of righteousness. The law in its original intent has always been meant to be a tutor, to show us our duty make clear our condemnation, and show us our need of a Savior, as is one catechism question written. Again, I'll repeat that. The law is meant to be a tutor to show us our duty, make clear our condemnation, and show us our need for a Savior. Now, Jesus, here in the sermon, after correcting the original intent of the Sixth Commandment, here in verse 25 and 26, he warns his hearers of their impending judgment by tying these principles of reconciliation that we read in the preceding verses. So let's read our text again, Matthew 25, 25. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you're with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown in prison. There's three things that, among other things, I believe this text is showing us. The first thing is that we must be reconciled to God to go to heaven. Reconciliation with God is a requirement to go to heaven. Now, some have interpreted this verse to mean being reconciled to another person in regards to legal matter. And some have interpreted the opponent here in the text to mean another person who's taken you as a lawsuit to court and that you should try to reconcile that outside of court before you get to court. This interpretation is based upon the previous text that I preached two weeks ago, where if you look at 23 and 24, he says before... If you're presenting your offering and you realize that your, your brother, he says, has an ought against you, you, you stop your worship. Don't, don't offer that sacrifice. Go be reconciled to your brother. Then come present your offering. So many have, have seen, okay, this is reconciliation between man and man. Now this, verse 25 and 26, it seems to be speaking of the same thing uh, between man and man. While... It's true that we should seek reconciliation, and as he says here, he says to do it quickly. Now, while that's all true, I don't believe that that's what the text is saying. What our text has the uh, idea of is that there's, there's a law matter, there's a court scene, which is similar, coincidentally, to verse 21 and 22, where Jesus talks about if you have anger in your heart, you're guilty before the court. And if that anger escalates to where now you're sinning out loud and you're calling names out of anger, you'll be guilty before the Supreme Court. And there's an escalation 
where you're guilty enough to go into fiery hell. So there's a courtroom aspect to that passage. And now we have in verse 25 and 26 kind of the similar idea that there's a court proceeding. Well, in 21 and 22, who are we guilty before? We're guilty before God, okay? So that's one indication that tells us that it may not be reconciliation between man and man. Another thing that's striking is the wording is totally different moving from verse 23, 24, to 25 and 26. So 23 and 24 talks about your brother, which we mentioned that two weeks ago. It's, an, it's someone who's already a friend. It may be a friend in Christ where there's a strained relationship and that you go, you're go to reconcile, which that word means to rekindle the friendship, to go make things right, where in our text today, it uses the word opponent at law, or your version might say adversary. Okay, so it's a very different word. So we're talking about a different person here. So what do I believe the text is saying? I believe Jesus is using this opportunity after explaining the original intent of the sixth commandment, thou shall not kill. I believe he's using the opportunity uh, to drive his listeners to conviction of their own sin, to change his hearers, or to charge, excuse me, to charge his hearers, those listening, to seek reconciliation with God and to do it quickly. And the key word here in the text is the opponent at law, it says, or like I said, your version might say adversary. So what does this word mean? The word literally means adversary or opponent in a lawsuit in the original Greek. It's also been translated as accuser. It's only used a small uh, handful of times in the New Testament it's used here, and then in another passage that we're going to look, look at in Luke chapter 12, it's, this, it's the, almost the same exact thing that Jesus says. But it's also used to identify Satan himself. In 1 Peter 5, 8, the very same word says, Be of sober spirit, be on alert. Your adversary, that's the word in the Greek, the devil. So he actually uses that word uh, to identify the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Well, Jesus obviously isn't talking about the devil because we're never commanded in Scripture to go be reconciled or make friends with the devil himself. Although he is called the accuser and he stands to accuse us, but in this sense, it wouldn't make sense to go make friends with the devil uh, before you're in the law of court. So Jesus obviously isn't talking about the devil. I believe Jesus is saying that the opponent or the adversary is God himself. And in Luke chapter 12, where Jesus uses the exact same command to go make friends, it's the same thing. We're going to look at it in a few minutes. There's a context that's very clear in that passage that he's talking about God being the opponent, you being the one that's guilty, and judgment is impending, so do it quickly. So I believe the opponent in this text is God. And this means that it says God is our adversary. God is our opponent. And because God is our opponent, because God is our adversary, we need to make it right with him. We need to be reconciled to God. This fits in with the rest of scripture, the truth that God is man's adversary in his natural state, his natural state of sin. Every person ever born 
is estranged from God and must be reconciled to him. There are no exceptions. Man in his natural state, because of Adam's sin and because of his own sin, your own sin, is an enemy of God. Is an enemy of God. And friend, the Bible says that God hates his enemies. This flies in the face of modern Christianity, I realize that. God doesn't just hate the sin, you realize. The Bible says that he hates the sinner. We hear the opposite. God doesn't hate the sinner. God just hates the sin. Well, friends, that's not in the Bible. God hates those who do iniquity. So yes, man in his natural state is an enemy of God, the Bible says. And unfortunately, our modern-day culture, our modern-day church avoids this doctrine at all costs. Yes, God is love, but friends, that's only half of the equation, okay? You always hear often that God loves you, or, or many churches say something like this, God isn't mad at you, to, to the sinner, to the one who lives in constant open rebellion to God. God is not mad at you. You ever heard that? Just come to our church. God will accept you just the way you are. And I'll tell you, friends, something really hit me this week when I was studying this text and the problem that we, we see with this. With this um, I would say it's not, what they're not say, it's not what they're saying, but it's what they're not saying. And I think a, lot, a big part of the problem is contemporary Christian music. Contemporary Christian music. Now, I'm not against all contemporary Christian music. I look for the ones that have solid theology, okay, because that theology comes out in their, in their music. But much of the contemporary Christian music is so man-centered, and it, and it screams this, this doctrine that God loves you just the way you are, and, and, and that there's no wrath of God, there's no holiness of God, there's no repentance that's why I love singing modern hymns written by solid people who have solid theology and a lot of the older hymns because it, it, it's the whole counsel of God. Which is why Paul said to the elders uh, at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, I believe, he said, I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So yes, God is love. Praise God, amen, hallelujah. But God also is wrathful. It's not an either or, friends. It's a both and. And God is wrathful not to sin like it's something aside from the sinner, but God is wrathful and has wrath stored up for the sinner. For the sinner. So yes, God has a general love for mankind, but we can't shrink away from declaring the whole counsel of God. Our text today declares that God is against you if you're not in Christ. God is your adversary if you've never been reconciled to him. And this is throughout scripture, friends, that God is the enemy of unbelievers and he is actually angry with them and his wrath abides upon them. Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were enemies... He's talking to Christians. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. 
Well, you know, John 3.16 is always out there in contemporary Christianity, right? Praise God, for God so loved the world, amen? But just 20 verses later, that's often left out, which says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, praise God, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The wrath of God abides on him. Psalm 11:5. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. So the one who loves violence, God doesn't just hate the sin that he commits. It says his actual soul hates the person who loves violence. Psalm 5, 4 says, You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells within you. Verse 5, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. Look what it says. You hate all who do iniquity. In verse 6, You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed. Oh yeah, God, of course. He abhors people who kill people, right? He abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. Sinners that are in rebellion to God, that live in a deceitful manner, that deceive people who are made in God's image. The Bible says that the Lord abhors not the sin, but the man. Psalm 711 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. God is love, praise the Lord. But it says here that he's also angry every day. Who's he angry at? Verse 12, if a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. God will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shaft. Those are just some of the texts. You could go on and on and on to show that God doesn't just hate the sin. The Bible says he hates the sinner, the one who does iniquity, and abhors the person of bloodshed and deceit. Why does God hate sinners? Why does God hate those who are in rebellion towards him? Two reasons. Number one is because their iniquity and their rebellion represents all that is in rebellion against God and his sovereign rule. That's why he hates those who are committing iniquity. Also, because their sin hurts those who God made in his image and in his likeness. Their sin hurts other people, so that's another reason why God hates those who live in rebellion towards him. We are estranged from God enemies of God because we are all guilty before him. Now, if we look at this text, if you look uh, at sort of the outworkings of it, it actually presupposes that you're guilty. Jesus says, make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you're with him on the way. So there's, there's the context of that you're headed towards the courtroom. Make friends with him before you get there. So that when you get there, you're not pronounced guilty. There's no, like, there's no court case where you might be innocent. So the text itself presupposes that you are actually guilty. And that's why we're estranged from God. 
because we're slaves to sin outside of Christ, we love sin. We sin because we love it. We choose to do it. We choose freely to do it because we love our sin. The Bible calls us slaves to sin. So we are estranged from God and we are enemies of God because we are guilty. Because we are guilty. All of mankind is guilty before God. Romans 3.10 says there is none righteous, not even one. And, and Paul in Romans 3.10, he's actually quoting the psalmist in Psalm 14. Uh, where it says, God looked down upon the earth to see if there were any who understood, any who sought for God. And we all think, well, I know somebody who is godly, who seeks for God. He's, I know somebody who's good, right? Well, the Bible says God looked down upon the sons of man to see if there were any. And the psalmist says, and Paul repeats it, that there's none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, meaning no one who understands truly how to be right or to please God or to seek for God. It says there's none who seeks for God. You think, well, I know someone who, who sought God out, right? I sought God out. In your natural state, you would have never sought after God. If God had not intervened upon your life and regenerated your heart, and literally opened your blinded eyes, as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians. If God would have never done that, if God would not have sovereignly changed you and made you into somebody who would freely come to him, then you would have never sought after God. That's why the Bible says here in this text and in Psalm that there's none who seeks for God. It says in verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. And in case you thought there was one, Paul says, there is not even one, not even one. All of mankind is guilty before God. Not only are we all guilty before God, we are all on the way to our just condemnation. We are all on the way to our just condemnation. Now, when I say we all, I mean in our natural state outside of Christ, okay? Jesus says here in our text to make friends quickly with your opponent at law so that, or excuse me, while you are with him, it says, on the way. So again, this presupposes that you're on the way to the courtroom. You're on the way to stand before the judge to be declared guilty and to be thrown into prison, which is representative of hell, this is an illustration of the judgment seat of Christ. Now look with me. We're going to look at the, uh, the mirror text in Luke chapter 12. In Luke chapter 12. And we see how Jesus gives the same exact illustration. And this will help show us that he's referring to our impending judgment. So look at Luke chapter 12. Now coincidentally, this is where we are in our scripture reading and I read, I think, the first 21 verses. But in the context, in verse 1 of chapter 12, he's, he's t uh, speaking to a huge number of people, a, a, a thousands of people gathered. And in chapter 12, you see this interwoven theme of judgment all throughout the chapter. In verse 3, it talks about the things that are said in the dark will be proclaimed upon the housetops. That's a, that's a type of judgment. In verse 4, same thing. Do not be afraid who kill the body, but those who can kill and cast into hell. 
You have this theme of judgment, verses 8 and 9. It talks about those who confess Christ before man, or those who, don't, who deny him will be denied before the angels. This idea of judgment is all throughout the chapter. Verse 20, what about the rich man who built extra barns for his stuff? And God said, you fool, your soul is required of you tonight. You see how Jesus has this theme of judgment all throughout the chapter. Verses 35 to 38, Jesus talks about being dressed and ready, keeping your lamps lit because there's judgment coming. Verses 51 and 53 of the chapter talks about him coming to divide as a form of judgment. Now, verses 54 and 56, we're getting closer to the text. He rebukes them for not knowing how to, an- or for knowing how to analyze the weather. He says, you hypocrites, you know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and sky. Why do you not analyze the present time? And why do you not even on your own initiative judge what is right? So he rebukes them. You know how to, how to tell the weather, but you don't know the signs of the times, which are what? Jesus coming to judge. It's coming soon. And that's what brings us uh, to, excuse me. Well, verse 49, if you turn back, Jesus says, I've come to cast fire upon the earth, which is represent, representing judgment and how I wish it were kindled. So that brings us, if you look at Luke 12, 58, uh, Jesus says essentially the same thing. He says, for while you are going, okay, with all that context of judgment, he says, for while you are going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate, on your way there, make an effort to settle with him so that he may not drag you before the judge and the judge turn you over to the officer and the officer throw you into prison. I say to you, you will not get out of there until you have paid the very last cent. Jesus says the same exact thing at a different time here in Luke with the theme throughout the whole chapter, his discourse here being the theme of judgment, being the theme of judgment. And here in Luke, he says to settle with him. Now, this word in the original Greek also means, it means to be set free. Okay, it means to be set free from is the preposition right after. So this idea has making friends in our text in Matthew, but also to settle with him, to be set free from him uh, because you're guilty. And that's what he's saying here in the book of Luke. But again, friends, the idea is that you're headed towards the courtroom of God. You're headed to the courtroom of God. And there's no sense of trying to argue a case in which you are guilty. Now we see this in the text that it is crystal clear that Jesus is warning his audience to speedily get right with God, that he is your opponent and you're on the way to judgment. So again, friends, because we're guilty, because in our natural state we are an enemy of God, because God is against us, and because we are all headed on the path towards our own just condemnation, we must be reconciled to him. We must be reconciled to him. It's not an option. If you've never been reconciled to God, 
I urge you today, I plead with you to make it right with God, to be reconciled to him. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, the Apostle Paul addresses this idea of being reconciled to God. He says, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things passed away, behold, new things have come. Now all things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we may become the righteousness of God in him. So that is truth number one, is that we must be reconciled to God to go to heaven. Number two, and these will come quick, the last two. Reconciliation to God must be done speedily and diligently. Speedily and diligently. Friends, you don't know how much longer you have on this earth. Children, you don't know how much longer you have on this earth. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, he says to make friends quickly. And that word in the Greek literally means speedily, do it fast, don't wait any longer. In Luke 12, it says to make an effort, to make an effort to settle with your opponent. Now, for us in the English, make an effort, like I made an effort to mow the grass the other day, and well, I didn't get around to it. Nah, made an effort. That's not what the actual word in the Greek means. It actually literally means to be diligent, to work hard at something. There's effort. So do it. Be reconciled to God. Do it quick, friends. Do it quick. Just as the man that built his barns, he thought he had so much more life to live. So he told his soul, take it easy, relax, eat, drink, be merry. And God said, you fool, for your soul is required of you. When? tonight. Friends, don't wait any longer. Too many people go throughout their young childhood and early adulthood to say they've been under gospel teaching, they've been under gospel preaching, and they say, I'll wait till I'm older to get right with God. I'll wait till I get married, and then I'll start going to church and get right with God. You know, I want to do my fun things now, and then I'll get right with God. Friends, from the youngest to the oldest, you don't know how much longer you have on this earth. You don't know how, so do it. Get right with God quickly. Get right with God diligently. Reconciliation is not to be put off any longer. Don't wait another day, friends. Today is the day of salvation. Now, I want to appeal to you children. Do not think that you have such a long life that you can get right with God when you're older. Children, listen to me. Get right with God today. Seek him today. To be reconciled to God means to agree with him and to repent and to believe upon Christ alone for your salvation. See, the word in Luke where it says to make an effort to settle with him, it means you're actually agreeing with him that you're guilty and you're trying to make it right with him. You can't come to God on your own terms. 
children. To be reconciled with God means to agree with him that you are a sinner. To agree with all the texts that we, we read today that God is against you. God, that you are an enemy to God. Only then and, and then, friends, can you truly have saving faith until you realize that, yes, God is against me because I've rebelled against him, because I've rebelled against his law. Until you come to that point, friends, you cannot be saved. You have to come on his terms. And that is my third point with the text, is that you must be reconciled to God on his terms, not your terms. Which means, again, just repeating, to agree with what the king says. The idea is that we seek his mercy before we get to the courtroom. To seek his mercy before we get to the courtroom. Notice there's no negotiations in the text. There's no, well, you know, I've done a little bit, but uh, I'm not going to confess this over here. There's no negotiating with the judge in this case. You must come on his terms, not Ours. And the only way to be reconciled to God is through repentance of sin and faith in Christ alone. Repentance involves being sorry for your sin, not in a worldly way. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul gives the, uh, the antithesis between worldly sorrow, which brings upon death, and godly sorrow, which leads to salvation. Okay, when David... King David sinned and had adultery and set up the killing uh, of Uriah in Psalm 51. He sinned against the woman. He sinned against the man. But what does he say in Psalm 51? He says, against you and you alone, O Lord, have I sinned. So where's your sorrow for sin? Repentance involves godly sorrow, okay? Being sorry that you sinned against God. Children, being disobedient and in rebellion to your parents is sin against your parents, but ultimately is sin against God. Do you have godly sorrow that you don't have a heart to obey your parents? Do we have a godly sorrow that we don't obey his word? Adults, do we have godly sorrow that we see what the Bible says to not be angry, but you live in anger toward your spouse, anger toward your kids, anger toward your parents? Do you not have godly sorrow that that anger is in your heart? Only until you have godly sorrow, that brings about godly repentance. So the only way to be reconciled to God is on his terms through repentance of sin, but also by putting our faith and trust in Christ alone. In Christ, what does that mean? As the, psalm, or as the singer said, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Meaning, having faith in Christ means you, you know you have nothing to offer God. You have no righteousness of your own. You come and you totally plea upon his mercy. And you trust in the person and work of Christ alone. That he lived the life that you have to live to go to heaven. He lived the life that you and I could never live to be good enough to go to heaven. And then he died, the cro- he died on the cross. He died the death that you and I deserve to die. Not just the physical death, friends, but you realize when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It wasn't 
because you hear so often, because God just couldn't bear to see his son on the cross, so he, he turned around. And he couldn't bear to watch the Romans crucify Christ. You understand that's not what the Bible says. When Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was because at that very moment, the love of the Father turned to the wrath of God. And God poured upon the wrath for you and I sin upon Christ at the very moment of the cross. Just as in Isaiah, the prophecy, 55, I believe, the prophecy of Jesus dying on the cross said it pleased God to crush his son. And do you realize that Jesus took upon the wrath that you and I deserve for your sin? Well, I haven't been that bad. I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't done this, so I'm not as bad as this. But you friends, you understand that every sin deserves the just condemnation of God. And the very fact that you think you're not that bad is even more sinful. So I urge you, friends, get right with God before it's too late. <clears throat> now look at the last, the, the second part of the verse, or verse 26. Get right with God quickly. Do it diligently. Make sure you're right with God. Don't put it off any longer. He says, do it while you're on the way to being judged because if you wait and your soul's required of you, you're gonna stand before the judgment seat of Christ and he says you'll be thrown into prison, which is representative of hell. He says, truly I say to you, verse 26, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. Jesus is referring to everlasting, eternal damnation. And he says, until you've paid up the last cent. Friends, you will never be able to pay for all of your sins in hell, which is why it's eternal. Jesus paid the eternal price. It will take you all of eternity to pay for your sins. So in conclusion, I'd like to ask you, from the youngest to the oldest, have you been reconciled to God? Have you come face to face with your sin and realized that God is 100% just and right to condemn you to hell for eternity? Have you come to that point in your life? And that's a work of God in, in and of itself. But if you've not come to the realization that God would be 100% right and just to condemn you to hell for eternity, there's no reconciliation for you. There's no reconciliation for you. Has God opened your eyes to just how wretched your sin is before him? I pray that he has. And if he is doing it now with the text, this is the whole reason for the law of God. The original intent of the law is, is to open up and lay bare our hearts to show us how guilty we are of breaking God's law. That's the point of the law. If God has done that or God is doing that, I urge you and plea with you to don't wait any longer. Repent. Be reconciled to God today. Now to the believer, this truth that God hates those who do iniquity, the truth that God is against those outside of Christ, the truth that God is wrathful not just to sin but to sinners, that shouldn't make us feel, oh, wow, that's really harsh. 
to the believer, that should deepen your love for him. You understand? Because that could have been you. If you're in Christ, God could have left you to your own sin. He didn't owe you a single thing. Children, if you're in Christ, God could have allowed you to stay in your sin. You realize that just because you're in a gospel home, that doesn't obligate God to open up your eyes. He could have kept your eyes blinded. I've seen many homes where many godly parents in gospel-centered homes that have raised their children, and God has kept their eyes blinded and kept their hearts closed. Look at John Piper and John Piper's son. Grew up in a gospel-centered home, and now his son, because for whatever reason, God did not open his eyes and open up his heart. Now his own son is a leading voice against Christianity. So children, if you're in a gospel-centered home, A, thank God. And if you're in Christ, thank God again because he could have left you in your sin. He could have left you in your sin. So to the believer, this truth should deepen our love for him and should cause us to seek after him more and more, to seek after his holiness, his righteousness, to seek after knowing him more and more and more. Finally, brothers and sisters, I want to commend if Christ has reconciled you to God, as the Apostle Paul said, he has given you the ministry of reconciliation. If God has reconciled you to him, then you're obligated to seek for others to be reconciled to him as well. One of the Beatitudes is blessed are the peacemakers, those who seek for others to be at peace with God as God has made you to be at peace with him. You have the ministry of reconciliation. What are you doing with it? What are you doing with it? So let's seek to be, uh, see others reconciled to God. Let's examine ourselves that we have been reconciled to God. And let's seek to honor Christ in the ministry of reconciliation. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you oh so very much, Lord, that you, uh, God, even shed your grace upon any of us, God. You don't deserve, we don't deserve any of your grace, Lord, uh, but you have so chosen, God, out of your free grace to reconcile us to Christ through your Son. We owe you everything, Lord. God, I pray that you use the words, use your word, Father, to pierce the hearts of the unbelievers and bring them to Christ. For your glory, God, not for our own. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.